This is the RSM Orthopedic Section Podcast. We feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. My name is Akib Khan, and I'm an orthopedic registrar on the Section Council, and I'll be your host on this podcast. Welcome. We're now joined by Mr. Tom Quick, who is a expert in peripheral nerve injuries and works in the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital. Um, he has a specialist interest in managing complex patients with nerve injuries, and we're really glad to have him here at the Trauma Symposium. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so you've delivered a really engaging keynote speech uh, at, the, um, at the Trauma Conference. And my first question for you is, in terms of nerve injury, um, what are the key things that we need to know about assessing patients? The, the key to nerve injury, I think, is having an open mind, first of all. So many people consider nerve injury to be just one thing. The nerve is injured and it's not working. Nerves are incredibly complicated. They're made up of hundreds of thousands of nerve cells or axons, and each of those can be damaged in a different way. Like any trauma, the key is mechanism. So appreciating how that injury was caused. Was it a closed injury, an open injury? Was it large kinetic force? Was it slow, gentle delivery of compression? All of these things are gonna direct the likely injury and therefore the natural history. So appreciation that this is trauma like any other and in the same way one tibial fracture is not like another, one nerve injury is not like another. That's really, really um, uh, clear. And one of the things I quite liked about your talk was how you sort of helped me in thinking about nerve injuries as either being degenerative or being a conduction block. And I was hoping you might be able to share that with our listeners. So diagnosis of nerve injury means appreciating the, the overriding nature of the injury. Of those hundreds of thousands of axons, there may be some that are Sunderland 5 and some that are Sunderland 3 and a variety of mixtures. So those classifications are great on a cellular level, but on a patient and clinical level, they're of little use. And so the overriding impression can be classified more simply. And I do that into either conduction block, which means the nerves are intact anatomically, but physiologically broken. So they're not degenerate and they're just not working. They're there, but they're broken. You could think of it as bruised or concussed. Or a degenerative nerve injury where the nerve has died away and this is where you get a growth cone which has a tinel sign when you tap on it and that that regenerates if it can regenerate it will do and it needs direction from basement membranes and endoneurium but it also needs Schwann cells and this is the environment that allows the growth cone to regrow so after for example low energy crush injury if you have a degenerative nerve injury there's a tinel sign those nerves will try as hard as they can to grow a millimetre a day and if we can direct that growth they'll refine their end organs. We can't speed that up but we can watch it happen. But if the tunnel sign stays still it's a sign that those nerves don't know where they're going and need help from a surgeon generally to go and rewire a course for them to grow down. So the tunnel sign is key then in the examination? Yeah we haven't moved forward for well over a hundred years in terms of assessment um, 
the imaging modalities that we have, the neurophysiology, they're all of help, but the best sign that we have, the best test that we have, is a tapping examination finger. So you tap from distally to proximally along the course of the nerve. It means you having read your uh, textbooks, know the anatomy of that nerve, but start at the distal most part of the nerve and tap just like if you were examining a chest and percussing, and percussing a chest and tap proximally. And at the point where, where the patient reports they have tingling, you check whether that's in the territory of the, of the nerve that you're examining. For example, if you're tapping along the median nerve, you're looking for tingling that goes into the median distribution. Then examine again over time. So record where that tingling sign was. Relate it to bony landmarks. It was two and a half centimeters from the medial epicondyle, for example. And re-examine in a month or six weeks time. That's given enough time for those nerves to grow a millimeter a day to get to a point where you can differentiate between that growth. So that's a Tinel sign, it's really useful, but it's pathognomonic of a degenerative nerve injury. Sure, and if we're thinking that it's not a degenerative injury and we're actually worried that this might be um, uh, sort of an unfavorable degenerative, sorry, um, condition, when should we be thinking about calling our local peripheral nerve injury unit? So there's many indications for referral, but the strongest is you're not quite sure what's going on or you want help. All of us appreciate that I couldn't treat complex knee dislocations or shoulder instability or scoliosis, and so we don't expect people to be able to do this by themselves. So there's no embarrassment, uh, and it's best if you call early. So the best indication is you're just not sure and you're worried about your patient. As a good doctor, as a good clinician, that's exactly what you should do. But absolutes are if you have neuropathic pain in the distribution of a nerve with dysfunction, if you have a stationary Tinel sign, so it's there but it's not advancing, or a conduction block that hasn't resolved within three to six months. So if there's no Tinel sign and you've checked and still things aren't working, the time to bail out on that waiting is after three months, but certainly before six. And are those the same indications for needing an operation then? Is that why we're referring them, if they have those things? Yeah, so again, I, all nerve injury units have a limited capacity, certainly in today's world. There is a great benefit from advice and support in terms of therapy, analgesia, psychology, uh, and advice and information. So all of those things we can offer, and we try to heart to sort of hone down on those that are most likely to need our surgical intervention. But you're right, this is a team game. Um, and if you're not sure and you want help, we've got all of that expertise within a, a nerve unit. Thank you very much. And before we move on from this, this topic, I wanted to ask you to just expand slightly on the importance of sympathetics and neuropathic pain and how, that, um, how we should be examining for that and how we should be managing our patients if they do have these issues. Uh, so I'll deal with a probably more simple part of that first, and that's those tiny little nerves that bring sweating, hair growth, and function to the skin. Sympathetic nerves run within a nerve, so their axons are small, they're generally non-myelinated, and they're tiny. And that means if nerves are squashed or stretched, they can cope with that more easily than the larger fibers. And so if you've had an injury and you're not sure if the nerves cut or not, 
check for sympathetics because they'll be the ones that generally get by and survive. So they're really useful as a marker of a subtotal injury and that's useful in terms of diagnosis and also prognosis. Neuropathic pain is a whole world of information and opinion um, and a difficult area but it is the patient's experience of nerve injury. Any adult patient with nerve injury will have some element of neuropathic pain. Pain comes in two types, nociceptive, where tissue is damaged, fracture, dislocation, bruise, and the nervous system detects that and communicates that to the brain, or those nerves go rogue and create pain by themselves, and it's lancinating, burning, tingling, shooting, and it's often severe. Neuropathic pain in trauma can often say that this nerve is still being injured, it's still under compression, it's under a circlage wire, it's caught in a fracture, it's overly tight. So th this is a sign to me that the nerve is still not happy, that it's still being damaged, it's still getting worse in front of your eyes. So think of it like that pain of a compartment syndrome, that it's something that should prompt you into action, not just ignore it, but if you have nerve injury and in that part of dysfunction you have the presence of neuropathic pain, either spontaneous i.e. it's there when you do nothing, or evoked, if you touch the skin it's painful, then that's an indication for early intervention. Thank you. Now, you've mentioned the importance of history and repeated examinations, and you've kind of touched on investigations slightly. Are there any investigations that are recommended in patients who have nerve injuries after trauma? So, investigations should never stall treatment. They're not necessarily going to help you in any clear way. It's often useful to exclude other types of injury. So, for example, an avulsion can often be diagnosed, or the presence of a tumour that may well be a, a contributing factor. Um, but more commonly, we use it to identify and localise the injury. So where that hematoma is, where that edema is, is often the location of the nerve injury. And in total injuries where we have no localizing signs, that's often useful. But the key thing is, it is not a def, you know, you don't need any imaging, any nerve conduction studies to refer a patient. History, examination, some assessment of what degree of nerve injury is all I would want you to do, and it should never delay treatment. Thank you. And I like your quote, um, time is muscle, um, and that we should, you know, when it gets to a year from the you know, initial insult, that may actually just be too late. Yes, yeah, so, so we don't understand why this happens yet. Um, we're trying hard to investigate it, but it's a bit like in the old days before mobile phones, you'd arrange to meet somebody and you'd say, you know, I'll get the 6.30 train and they'd be at the train station to meet you. If you're not on that train, if you're not on the next train, then they're probably going to go home and they might not even return your calls and that's like a muscle waiting for a nerve. So they'll wait so long, but then you've tested their patience and it's sort of talk to the hand, that's it, relationship over. So even if I get a nerve to a muscle beyond that waiting period, and it's probably different in different ages and different muscles and different nerves, but certainly in a period of nine to 12 months, being aware that nerves often have long distances to travel, if they're not there within that time period, you can't get that muscle to contract under control of that nerve. And so these are the challenges of time and distance that we have in this four-dimensional speciality of nerve treatment. Thank you. And now moving on to the actual general management of, um, of 
I guess, any surgical patient. As, as a general orthopedic surgeon, how can we do better in surgery to avoid um, having nerve injuries? So I think the biggest piece of advice that I can give is don't be scared by nerves. Everyone seems to want to just get to bone, stay on bone, ignore it. There's sort of statements if you even see the PIN, it, it stops working. Um, I spend my whole time pulling on nerves, poking nerves, stretching nerves. As long as you're not dissecting it with a bristo or leaning on it or trying to avulse it, nerves are actually incredibly tolerant of gentle movement and mobilization. So my overriding advice is if it's not working, go and find it. Or if it's in danger of becoming damaged and it's still working, find it at the beginning, check it, and that's by using a nerve stimulator. And these are great pieces of kit that are available from a number of um, suppliers, but they're really useful. You just create a small current, you touch it on the nerve and you'll see muscle function and that allows you to assess that nerve and you can say sciatic nerve is working at the beginning of this hip fracture and it's working at the end of this hip fracture treatment and it allows you to say it wasn't me and to know that you can sleep well at night knowing that you've done the best for your patient and that nerve's fine you don't have to be worrying about oh I wonder what happens now it doesn't mean the nerve might not stop working afterwards but it means you've got clear information that was working at the end of the operation which both helps with diagnosis and with treatment Thank you. And I was really impressed by the number of different treatment options that can actually be used when a patient does have an established nerve injury. Um, and in your talk, you went over several things that are currently in practice. But my question for you is, what is the future for treating nerve injuries? Um, I think like most areas, we've got biologic therapies coming through. In nerve injury, we don't have a drug. So it's a bit like when you had a heart attack in the 1950s, it was either it was blown apart and you needed your ventricles stitching together, or it was bed rest and that was what you got. And that's what we have in nerve injuries. For the most severe, we do some surgery. For everyone else, it's watch and wait. So we've got a few molecules that we're well aware have therapeutic benefit in creatures, and yet none have reached clinical trials. And there's a number of reasons for that that we're trying to address but drugs are definitely one, both small molecules, but also larger biologic treatments. And then tech, the ability now to transduce um, electrical signals from muscle or even directly from nerve. We've got nerves that we've grown into electrical circuits, um, so we can transduce within the body or through the skin, and robotics are getting better and better. In truth, we're still only able to control the efferent, the function, we can't yet get feedback from these um, uh, robots and uh, prosthetic devices, but they're getting better and better and pretty soon we'll be able to get feedback, tactile, haptic feedback from these. And again, if you've got an insensate hand but full power, it's hugely degraded in terms of its function, but it's still pretty good. But if we can give these robot hands a tactile sensation, then we're going to be away and often I think we'll be able to do more with that than we will with the vagaries and problems of the biologic system. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.